So if you're thinking from a long-term business perspective, then you're automatically going to include facts about the environment into that equation because it's so central to every human. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Swell Investing's Money Meets Morals podcast. Each episode will feature conversations with people who are making money by creating positive change in the world. I'm Natalie Ricks, and I head up external communications at Swell. For those of you who aren't familiar, Swell is an impact investing platform helping people invest in portfolios of companies solving environmental and social challenges. Each of our portfolios focus on solutions that map to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. With Swell, you can invest in green tech, zero waste, or healthy living, just to name a few. Joining us here today, we have on the podcast, Winston Ibrahim, founder and CEO of startup Hydros, who is aiming to disrupt the water filtration business and changing the world for the better as he does it. We often talk about impact investing from the investor perspective as well. But today, we're really excited to share with you the company perspective. What does it take to create an impactful company? That's what we'll find out. Hydro sells water bottles, pitchers, and crafts with a self-contained water filtration system. They aim to be the go-to product for people who want clean, filtered water on the go, and they're officially launching to the public on May 21st. The company is impactful by disrupting the bottled water industry, a three to $5 billion a year industry that produces more than 30 billion plastic water bottles, which end up in landfills each year. So I will turn it over to you, Winston. Can you tell me a little bit about the impact of what you are accomplishing with Hydras? Thanks so much, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so our goal is really to create very stylish, very functional, and very affordable and very scalable home products and a water ecosystem of filtration products that will make using these products such a pleasure that people won't ever have to buy single-use plastic bottles, which I think are extraordinarily wasteful and damaging to the environment. There's about a thousand bottles a year consumed by the average American, costing them between three and $500. The average family will waste about 3,500 bottles a year. So it's really a meaningful market opportunity that has grown by leaps and bounds and has some stagnant incumbents on the home filtration side that we thought were ripe for disruption. So we're very excited to have a brand new line of very innovative products to share with the public. Yeah, great. And once, um, just so we know, once they launch, where can people find Hydros? Initially on our website, hydroslife.com, and at many retailers to come near you. Oh, great. That's so exciting. Well, congratulations for everything you've achieved so far. And Hydros has been around for for a while, just in individual water mm-hmm. bottles. What got you to this point, and what has the response been from people thus far? Yeah, so I started this company initially with a few co-founders back in 2010, And we had all decided to leave our finance jobs when we were consumed with this idea and pursue it. And we created a very rudimentary initial prototype product, which did incredibly well and really resonated with consumers. It was $30 at the time. It was very clunky. And the fact that that was really hitting a nerve with the average consumer and getting distribution in Whole Foods across the country was a really meaningful data point to us and the appetite for consumers for a product like this. So we kind of took that and ran with it for a while. And eventually, you know, my co-founders kind of hit a wall of their interest and I stepped in and bought out the company and hired some professional operators, did a complete product redesign and refresh, got burned by a couple of, you know, bad business deals along the way, which 
you know, caused some gray hairs and some stress. <laughs> but finally, we were able to find this really great product development firm that's extraordinarily good at what they do called Nottingham Spurk Design. And they're based in Cleveland, Ohio, family-owned business for the last 50 years. And they're responsible for creating billions of dollars worth of successful consumer products. So the Swiffer, the Dirt Devil, the Spin Brush. And we came to them with our initial prototype and the inspiration that that had. And over the last couple of years, the Soup to Nuts helped us design and innovate and source and build a supply chain to get to where we are today. And it's really exciting to finally be at the cusp of launch. That is so exciting. So it's so it's super easy is what you're saying to yeah. be an entrepreneur and to just disrupt an entire industry. Yes, so, yes. Amazing. <laughs> Very so you're easy. basically going to disrupt an entire industry in a couple of, in a couple of weeks. Yes, so exactly. congratulations for getting this far. You were telling me that a concept that's really interesting to you is from the book called Lazy Environmentalists. And it's just kind of people aspire to do great things for right. the environment and fix problems, but kind of what gets in their way and how can you help them? Yeah. So it's a really fascinating book that I encourage everybody to check out. And the whole thesis is that while people may have a real passion to do something good for the environment, and they'll tell you all these incredible things that they would like to do and will do in a consumer survey or a report, the reality is that people are so consumed with their day-to-day -day lives, they only have so much bandwidth. So they might commit to do something for a few weeks, a few months if they're really dedicated, but in most instances, they'll fall off because it's just too hard to comply with something that's that out of alignment with their day-to-day -day life and can't be congruent with the facts of the reality. So what we were really trying to do with Hydros is create a line of products that made filtering your water, whether at home or on the go, such a pleasure and so easy, so seamless in your day-to-day -day life that people would never have to stop and think about, gee, am I gonna use a clunky home filtration system or am I gonna get some single-use plastic bottles from Costco or while I'm traveling just because that's so much easier for me and my family. So I think that's really the goal we've had. How can we create products that are such a pleasure to use that are affordable that people will never have a second thought about using them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's um, that actually touches on something that we're really passionate about here, which is change from the company level. So how do you support companies that are going to solve major challenges? So can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about whether you think that is something that's going to be a part of successful businesses in the future? Or yeah, just tell me a little bit about, more about that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think every business really has to find some key pain points, especially if you're trying to disrupt a already established set of businesses that solve this problem. There's a reason why bottled water, as you mentioned, is a three to $5 billion industry because consumers perceive it as a problem that they can't have fresh, quote unquote, water on the go. And there's a reason why the home filtration market is pushing a billion dollars a year. People want an alternative to plastic bottles. So that appetite and consumer demand exists. How could we find a niche in that market that would better address those pain points? And I think being purpose-driven and having a value proposition behind that gave us the passion to really stick it through the hard times in the process of getting this business off the ground, as well as you know the passion to create products that would endogenously solve a lot of the clunky points and the existing solutions on the market. Mm -hmm, definitely. And so we like to try on this podcast, kind of try to make everything very personal and human driven and talk about the personalities behind all of these companies. So can you kind of take a step back and tell me a little bit about your 
uh, personal life? Has it always been purpose-driven? Is this something that you grew up with? Or what made you want to fight the good fight to create this yeah. company? Because it sounds like there have been a lot of challenges. Yeah, totally. So uh, I did not have a very purpose-driven background. And, you know, my family is, you know, in very traditional finance. My dad has been on Wall Street his whole career, came here as a poor Indian-American immigrant, went to Warden, got a scholarship, worked his way up the ladder, ended up as the CEO of a few companies, had some good exits. And I was being pushed in a very similar trajectory into corporate finance and corporate law. And it was, I think, a accident of timing and fate that I didn't end up in that position because I almost ended up working on some Wall Street banks right as the financial crisis was hitting and ended up not pursuing that career partially because of that. At the same time, bumped into my then co-founders at Hydros. So it was a very beautiful marriage of timing. And I think I was instantly struck by the potential opportunity of the space as somebody who's always been very passionate about health and wellness. And I think the rise in the health and wellness business in general has really been incredible and really demonstrated a real sort of opportunity for entrepreneurs as well as a huge existing appetite, not only in Americans, but that's emerging globally, if you look at the Indian and Chinese markets. So it kind of started as something that was very reluctant to my family thought I was insane. They tried to talk <laughs> me out of this multiple times. Are you kidding me? You're turning down offers from Wall Street firms to you know, go do this. You're you know, completely destroying your life and your career. And I think they've since then become really enthusiastic about the opportunities in this business based on the trajectory of other businesses in the sector, as well as the general rise of health and wellness businesses. I think you've also seen at the same time an extraordinary growth in the appreciation of the authenticity of a brand. You see every day now that it's not necessarily the more established brand that's winning out despite so many cynics viewpoints. You're seeing purpose-driven brands that are really striking a chord with their core consumer base on what they're trying to achieve in the world, win out every day against these monoliths who can scale, who can have maybe better pricing, maybe offer a little bit more convenience to the consumer. And I think what we've tried to do with Hydros is do the best of both worlds, have something that's very purpose-driven that can offer a huge amount of value in people's daily lives, improve their lives, improve their bottom line, but also at the same time, almost without people thinking about it actively, improve the environment in significant ways. And I think that's really the secret here is the fact that we're not pushing this as a way for people to improve the environment. It just happens to come along as a side effect of buying into this great product line and ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and something we talk about, you mentioned you mentioned brand and that actually, we don't you don't talk about it as much in socially responsible investing, but if you think about it, companies that are purpose-driven tend to have better intangibles. So Definitely. they don't necessarily run into the issues that Volkswagen or uh, BP has run into because right. they have everything in order. So can you talk a little bit about how kind of the rise of intangibles and brand value goes along kind of with purpose and, yeah. and that returns for investors? Totally. Well, I think it operates on multiple levels. I think first and foremost, the job of a founder and a CEO is to create and then set a culture that will be really impactful for consumers, for employees, for the entire organization. And that starts and scales down. And I think being authentic about that and really being honest and you know expressing that and holding a company to its values will create a whole stream of positive feedback loops and downward effects 
that will have an exponential growth trajectory. And it may look a little strange, especially the more traditional investors. I think there's now an appreciation for this in a greater way with all types of investors and certainly with the consumer market in general. I think you get better products out of companies that are purpose-driven because they're going to go the extra mile for their products. They're really going to think very carefully about those products. They're not going to take convenient shortcuts that might offer the consumer something a little bit more substandard. They're going to really put a lot of pride behind those. They're going to have better retention, better corporate culture that's going to make the work environment better, which is going to end up with better products and services for the consumers. So that all becomes a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just starting out with that positive feedback loop and getting enough, you know, kind of volume and velocity to launch yourself off the ground. That is the challenge. Once you're there, you can, with a little bit of steering, direct things to keep on growing and growing, hopefully. Mm -hmm, definitely. And then at scale, are there companies that, because we have all public equities, but at scale, are there companies that you look up to and that you want your company to eventually reach that level and that you admire? Definitely, definitely. I think one company we really admire internally at Hydros is Patagonia because of their purity of mission, their sourcing, the vision of their founder is particularly inspiring about how he deals with employees and culture and how he'll effectively get out of people's way who are bright and talented. It's not about ego. It's about letting people do their jobs and setting a culture and a framework where they're empowered to be their best. I think as a good leader, really, it's about empowering people around you. And I think that's a very hard thing for early stage entrepreneurs to learn is that it's not about doing everything yourself but it's about finding people who can complement the deficiencies in your own personality or your own set of skills, bringing them into the fold, motivating them in the right way to be their best, providing them with those resources and providing them with inspiration to grow and opportunities to grow and lead. And that will really build a great corporate team, allowing people to make mistakes, allowing people to take strategic risks, and that will lead to really great products and innovation over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're big, we're big fans of Patagonia also. So you mentioned, and this is really interesting to me, that you were in traditional finance, your family kind of pushed you in that direction, mm -hmm. and you decided to go completely in a, a more purpose-driven, probably arguably more difficult route. So Absolutely. could you tell us kind of a little bit behind that, a little bit more about that story and what that looked like for you? Sure, yeah. So my father is the CEO of a large financial services institution on Wall Street, was aghast that I was going to pursue this type of career. And there was a huge struggle within the family uh, about my pursuing this and a lot of challenges from a relationship perspective and a lot of people kind of scratching their heads as to whether this was anything more than an also ran kind of social good hobby. And I think there's subsequently been, especially with our generation, kind of a surge in appeal of brands that are really focused on offering value propositions that are a little bit more opaque that are, go to sort of core values of doing well and doing good. And I think the fact that things are now really commercialized in that segment of business has really demonstrated the value proposition. Nothing speaks higher than getting positive financial returns. And I think as the industry has grown, as you've seen a lot of liquidity events for companies that are purpose-driven, that are doing well and doing good at the same time, or doing well by doing good, which is very intriguing as well. You're seeing more and more people understand that this is actually very good. And I think this has been going on for a very long time. I think it was just a little bit more closeted and now it's kind of come out 
as a broader segment. I also think that there's a lot of noise in the space and a lot of people who disguise enterprises that really should be nonprofits as social businesses because they want the laurels of the business. And there's nothing wrong with having a nonprofit, but people try and you know conflate the two and that's where you get damaged. So yeah, it was definitely a deep struggle in the family for a while. I got a lot of pressure against pursuing this career path that it was only with a lot of tenacity and over time as the metrics of the business and the potential value proposition has showed itself in consumer response to our initial prototype that really I was able to get kind of that permission for my family to actively pursue this. Um, was that a struggle when you were talking to, uh, when you were talking to investors, was that a struggle? Did you run into a lot of people who thought that you were running a nonprofit and didn't really get that it was a, it was, you can have both at the same time. Absolutely. When you're trying to raise money with a early stage product, especially in consumer products, where there's a lot of initial capital that has to be deployed in inventory and manufacturing equipment in R&D and all of these different manufacturing relationships. There's a huge amount of costs that go into that equation, trying to convince people who are sophisticated investors who don't necessarily understand that category in that space, that this can be a scalable value proposition, especially in the middle of the recovery from a massive financial crisis is very, very challenging. I must've met with over 200 different investors, got it rejected many, many, many times. And I think, it's kind of analogous to dating, right? You have to expect a huge amount of rejection and go into it with a little bit of humor. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs eventually get to that point where it doesn't phase them at all to hear no, because they know if they keep on going forward, they'll hear yes. And we were really, really, really lucky and blessed to get a wonderful group of investors. And I have some amazing board members and advisors from that group that are helping us in all sorts of ways. That's incredible. And did the people that you ended up being matched up with as far as investors, are they also investors in other purpose-driven businesses? Did you end up kind of finding people that, yeah, okay. Definitely, yeah. These are people who really understand the value proposition of purpose-driven companies, of creating value alignment that starts with the corporate culture, leads down into the actual products and is resonant with the consumers and feeds off of that and back and forth. Do you think in the future that we're going to see more people from traditional finance want to get into more purpose-driven things? I mean, we see a lot of interest with people wanting mm-hmm. to get into impact investing and asking mm-hmm. us what it's all about. So mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I definitely think that a lot of people are very, very kind of fed up with traditional finance and with just how dry the industry is. And sure, you can get very well paid in you know, one particular working there, but it's also a sacrifice of your time. And if you look at the demands that are placed on you, you're effectively making minimum wage. So I think there was a sexiness aspect to a traditional Wall Street analyst job. And I think that's largely faded for a lot of people who are millennials and younger, having especially been exposed to the financial crisis. I think you find a lot of people, and I'm seeing a lot of people entering the food and beverage industry, entering impact entrepreneurship, impact investment, who spent years, decades even in traditional finance roles and are looking for a way that they can create a generative enterprise that will be meaningful for them from a return perspective, will employ people, will give them a gainful living, will generate returns for their families, but also do something more, build a legacy that will actually matter, build some products that will actually matter. And that's something that requires a tremendous amount of risk and grit and even trying is extraordinary and 
more than a lot of people can or will ever do. And I think that should be applauded. But so many people are defecting to this side of the equation now. It's really inspiring. I think we're going to continue to see many interesting businesses and unicorns that come out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the social the social good unicorns. I'm ready for it. The social good unicorns, <laughs> exactly. absolutely. Exactly. That's what we wish for you. Thank you. Social good Thank unicorn. You. So going getting back to the, the problem that you're solving of keeping our oceans free of plastic, if you zoom out at the 10,000 foot view, if everyone invested in businesses like yours, built businesses like yours, what do you think that the world would look like if this was the norm? Yeah. So speaking particularly from the perspective of preserving, you know, the oceans and, you know, preventing plastic from getting to the oceans, the Pacific Garbage Patch has tripled in size over the last several years. You now have about 21 million metric tons of plastic per year that are being generated from consumer products, about $75 billion a year in damage to the environment. And look, Modern conveniences, plastics, they're not going anywhere. They're core to our current existence. They're a fact of life. But there are certain consumption patterns that people could be more conscious of that really could make an impact in that massive problem that we're facing that's gonna last for thousands of years, that's impacting every part of our ecosystem. You now have fish in the wildest part of Alaska where we get our wild Alaskan salmon at Whole Foods and other places that are getting contaminated with plastic. It's so ubiquitous. Babies are being you know, born with plastic in utero now. So it's very, very entrenched in our ecosystem. And it's not going to go away. It's not practical to think that plastic is going to go away 100%. But I do think that there are a lot of things that people can do just by voting with their pocketbooks and making a little bit more of a conscious choice that can reduce that substantially I think there's a lot of optimism around this. You know, I was at TED last week and I was privileged to be invited to a small lunch with Al Gore. And normally, you know, I was expecting Mr. Doom and Gloom. And he was actually very positive about where the trajectory of the world is going and climate change and how we are now kind of plateauing out of that. And, you know, it's not as bad as he thought. And, you know, we've still got a very deep hole to dig ourselves out of from the damage that we've done. But you now, instead of having an exponential growth equation of damage, you're now starting to see at least a flat line. And what's encouraging is that a lot of that is being generated by people voting with their dollars in the right way, people voting with their pocketbooks. Consumers across the world are demanding these solutions, especially in places like India and China, where they're seeing such a massive amount of pollution. I mean, if we think we have it bad here, it's extraordinarily bad there. So I think this is just the very beginning of an opportunity curve. And I think there's trillions of dollars in potential business opportunities that can be had by the right entrepreneurs and the right investors. That's that's really great to hear. And we love we love Al Gore. You're so lucky you guys have lunch with him. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, aside from using reusable water bottles, which we're getting some hydros bottles for Swell, awesome. what are some other things that are low-hanging fruit for people to take single-use plastics out of their day-to-day lives? Yeah. So there's things like bulk buying at grocery stores, right? Rather than, and now a lot of stores are actually giving you discounts. If you'll go to the store with your own reusable bag in San Francisco, where I live, it's actually something that's being financially incentivized, which I think is great because, you know, everybody can get a little bit lazy sometimes. And if you get dinged an extra 50 cents, you notice it. So I think that's a very smart thing to do, but just buying 
different products in bulk, taking glass containers, taking reusable plastic containers, whatever, going to the store, buying things in bulk, putting them in your own homemade containers and relying as little as possible on those types of things, shopping at farmers markets, having home gardens in general, when you can, making a conscious choice to rely less on our highly processed industrialized consumer market system, which is fantastic. It's driven such an upward surge of humanity and value and innovation. We have to be grateful for what our previous generations have given us, but we also have to remember that this is a double-edged sword. And if we can choose to opt out just a little bit on every single level in multiple areas of our lives and our diversification perspective, look at it as sort of an investment portfolio, right? If you diversify your investments, that's great. So think about your life in ways that you can diversify your environmental impact. So everything from using these reusable containers to maybe carpooling with somebody to driving to not, you know, buying, you know, that expensive, you know, pharmaceutical somewhere to not, you know, buying from, you know, a retailer that, you know, doesn't share your values to, you know, not buying things, you know, that have wrong chemicals in them or other things like that. The consumer's ability to vote with their pocketbooks is incredible. And I think just incorporating some of these strategies into your day-to-day -day life where you can minimize the use of single plastic items across the value chain is very high, supporting businesses that do have those values. So there's some great restaurants that I've encountered here in LA that you know will only have you know containers whole of condiments and things like that and use bulk condiments to refill it rather than those little plastic you know rips, right? Or coffee shops that will give you a discount if you show up with a reusable container to get your coffee. So I think there's a lot of businesses that are seeing that there's a demand and they're encouraging and incentivizing that. I think that's something that is meaningful. And I think government, you know, kind of intervention on a modest level that incentivizes that in a similar way to what we have in San Francisco is very impactful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. To what extent do you think it is the responsibility of business? Because I feel like we've been in this, we've been in this cycle where uh, the whole role of business in the past has just been to create wealth, but we're at this point where it doesn't, it won't matter if we don't have a beautiful world to mm -hmm. experience it in. So mm -hmm. can you talk about what you think the responsibility yeah. of business is? Yeah, so so to me, they're actually one and the same, right? So I, I, I have a hard time separating those. And I've always had a hard time separating those when I've been pitched by different, you know, impact, you know, entrepreneurs myself. I think that there's no discrepancy whatsoever. And I think if you're thinking from a wealth perspective, you have to incorporate all of the facts available at the time. So if you're thinking from a long-term business perspective, then you're automatically gonna include, you know, facts about the environment into that equation because it's so central to every human. And I think that goes back to what I was discussing earlier about value-centered, you know, entrepreneurship, really setting a culture that ends up resonating very well with consumers because it creates goods and services that are better, more powerful, more scalable than what you have from a pure economic balance sheet perspective. I think it's incorporating a balance sheet into the equation, but it's also thinking beyond just the simple ledger and thinking about, okay, that might give me a certain set of returns on this piece of paper, but the world is bigger than a piece of paper. And if I really wanna have a successful company and I really wanna have products that consumers are gonna choose over another product because there's so much ubiquity in the space, then I'll create things that have value and that generate returns to consumers and then to my investors in multiple ways. Yeah. 
So they're one and the same. They they're go one and the same. Hand in if hand. you're thinking yeah. on that broad, long-term, holistic perspective. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the thing I would stress to entrepreneurs is not to just think there's a tremendous amount of power in focusing on one idea, one niche. And I think that's important. But I think when you're considering the value proposition of your business and the scalability and how to create products and how to build a team and a culture, you have to think holistically and look beyond a pure balance sheet. The balance sheet has to be there. Otherwise, you don't have a business, right? That's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But you can't just think with balance sheet. That's like saying an athlete should just work out one part of their body. If I'm an Olympic runner, I'm just going to run all the time. No, I'm also going to do other things because guess what? If I just ran all the time, I would get the crap beaten out of me by the other guy who's doing other types of training as well. <laughs> right. Exactly. I like that comparing it to an Olympic athlete. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that we talk about often as well, mm -hmm. and we've talked with, we talked with Kathy Clark on our, who was on our last podcast is the importance of measuring impact. Mm -hmm. What kinds of figures were you sharing with investors when you were talking about the impact that you're going to create? Yeah. Time? Yeah. So it's, you know, something that you want to keep a little opaque because you don't want to be too excited about it at an early level. So you want to, you know, kind of, you know, be a bit conservative, but just looking at sort of the broad level trends, you can see that there could be a massive return on impact as well as return on investment, which again, I think are one of the same here. So if you look at the general consumption of bottled water, it's grown in 20 years to be a multi-billion dollar business of single use plastic bottles. If you look at the growth of the home filtration market, it's pushing a billion, a billion plus dollars a year spent by Americans on those products. So the general math is that there's a massive amount of consumption. And if you can do something that will increase the incremental sale in that marketplace or grab share or both, then you can do it in a way that automatically is going to be better for the environment, then you're obviously making a huge impact. It's hard to quantify that without a year or two of sales and you know some data behind it. So I can't speak to the civics because we're you know kind of in a very early phase, but we anticipate that could be quite high. And we're developing kind of a metrics language and some you know measurements based on the waste generated by single-use products, the you know kind of lack of efficiencies in some of the current products in the reusable filtration market that I think are going to show that we you know generate some very positive returns compared to the existing solutions. Have you had any experiences? Because we like to bring it back to the kind of the human stories that we're sure. telling here. Have you had any experiences where you've seen firsthand the impact of what clean water? means to people? Are you a big going to the beach kind of person? And um, oh, definitely. is that a big part of your So, so of your one life? of my big hobbies is hiking by secluded parts of the ocean in Northern California, where I live. And, you know, I've been going to you know certain areas and beaches in Bodega Bay and Point Reyes for a long time. And it's astonishing to me now that even on the most deserted trail, where you can't find a trace of a human being within sight of you, you can find plastic scattered all over the place. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's really been a kind of growing thing that I've noticed progressively over the long haul of time. You find reusable bottles and, you know, discarded or not reusable, single use bottles discarded everywhere. You find soda cans discarded everywhere. So it's a real kind of growing problem. And that's a very clean part of the world by comparison. So if you do the kind of magnification 
of what that might mean in a place that's less conscious, that's less considerate about this, or has less wealth around to you know do some kind of prophylactic cleanup. It becomes a massive, massive, massive issue. I think looking at the quality of seafood and the quality of you know because seafood you know kind of accumulates damage right up the ecosystem. And if you look at the analyses of you know, and I eat a lot of fish, so that's why I keep track of these things from a personal health perspective because I wanted to know what I was generating. And, you know, as somebody who ate a lot of fish and who recently did a lot of blood lab work, I was astonished to see that I had kind of the downstream effect of some of these plastics. And I had to do a period of detox to get some of these things out of my body. So it's everywhere and it's, you know, very impactful. And there's a lot of kind of literature out there that people can read about how this could potentially cause some diseases and cancers and a lot of information on the rise of certain allergies and other kind of disorders in children that are just too hard to ignore for somebody who's, you know, kind of as passionate about health and wellness as I am. And I think that's a big problem. Yeah. Did you, so tell me more about that. So you did your own blood work and yeah. did you stop eating seafood because of the issues with the, our ocean seafood or? Yeah. So I've, I've had to, you know, kind of shift my strategies and minimize it. And I take certain other supplements like activated charcoal, which by the way is the sole constituent of hydrosis filter is activated charcoal, which is a great binder and remover of toxins. So I'll eat that with my seafood. I'll eat other kind of things with my seafood to kind of mitigate that. But it's just kind of really shocking and sorrowful that, you know, we've graduated to the stage of humanity in the last 100, 150 years, where we've had such an impact on our environment that there's no part of the planet, no matter how pristine and gorgeous it might seem, that can't have some trace or frankly, a large amount of this endogenous in the ecosystem. Yeah. And if we don't, I, I think you shared a stat with me that was by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do you think at that point, we just have to stay away from seafood? Is that, or we have to use those strategies you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there's a reason why there's so many companies that are thriving in the health and wellness space. And a lot of these companies are offering solutions for people to detox themselves. I think the unfortunate reality, and you know, uh, Dave Asprey from Bulletproof is a huge inspiration to me, has this really great quote where he says, if you're gonna only eat what's in mother nature, then you can only, then you should only get your toxins from mother nature. And so the reality is that none of us live in a world where we can only get our toxins from mother nature. So we have to employ other strategies to combat the toxins that are part of our body. And I think to the extent that people can minimize their exposure to those types of toxins, the more the better. And unfortunately, you're only gonna see a rise in people being more and more constrained about that. But the impact that people can make by making those few conscious choices about their personal consumption, about thinking about the values of their retailers, the brands that they buy, uh, the packaging materials that they use, of how much waste they generate, and the other kind of parts that fit into that equation are the first steps in making a dent that can maybe one day mitigate the problem to the point where it's not as big of a deal as it is now. Because right now it's a massive problem and it may not be growing at the rate that it was, you know, before in certain perspectives, but from plastic consumption, it's going to continue to grow for the foreseeable future. So yes, I think there's irrevocable damage in terms of the few hundred year mile mark, unless there's some innovative technologies, which I hope are innovative that can clean this up faster that are going to impact people for generations and generations. And once you get those toxins in your body, by the way, they don't just transmit to you, they transmit down the system. So these are things that we're increasingly finding 
from a research perspective, are getting passed from generation to generation in utero. That's so troubling and sad, but it makes me really passionate about what you're doing and what you're accomplishing. Thank so. you. I think we're a small part of the equation that will hopefully balance things again in our favor. So you are also an impact investor yourself. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're looking for when you're looking at companies mm -hmm. and why you choose to invest that way yourself? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I try and divorce my enthusiasm from the social mission to look at it as a pure business. Because again, it's an impact business. It's not a charity that I'm writing a write-off check to. So I have to look at it from the perspective that I would look at, you know, a software as a services business. Is this a really good product? Does it have a reasonable chance of scaling? Does it address problems? I definitely think you have to, you know, divorce yourself initially from your excitement over the social mission. And I see a lot of people kind of get so caught up in their passion for trying to do something good, which is incredible. But if the business isn't real, if it's not there to support that mission, then you don't really have anything at the end of the day. It's just a nonprofit. So we always end with this question, but I just ask you what you invest for overall. What is your, what is your goal when you're making your investments? My goal as an investor is to build a world where people are in no way limited by the circumstances of bad health from contributing their maximum potential to our society. I'm passionate about investing in businesses and creating businesses that will help address that problem in some way or the other by making things scalable, accessible for the average consumer, as well as people in the elite. I think we have to you know, consider everybody across the world and unlock all that potential because the more potential we can unlock from all these you know, amazing people everywhere across the world, the more we can advance as a society. You don't know, you know, a person who's in the middle of the developing world who has this terrible disease that if they had the right knowledge and access to information and access to things that they could use to improve it could be the next Steve Jobs. So I think it's incumbent on everybody to do what they can to unlock all this human potential everywhere. And you could do that in so many ways in your day-to-day -day life. And I guarantee you the ripple effect from all of that will be incredibly powerful over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, I like that overall you talk about taking little steps and that little steps matter. Thank you so much, Winston. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Fantastic, thanks yeah. so much, Natalie. Really appreciate it. Thanks everyone. To stay in touch with the Swell team and be the first to know about new podcast episodes and updates, sign up at swellinvesting.com. If you like the show, please go ahead and share it with friends and family. And before you go, I'd like to turn it over to Vaughn from the Swell team for a special message. Hi friends, Vaughn from Swell Investing here. What if you could invest in our planet while also investing in your financial future? Resources are diminishing, our population is growing, and innovation is needed to sustain our world. Swell Investing is an impact investing platform helping you invest in high growth companies innovating in clean water, renewable energy, and green technology. It's a market opportunity you can feel good about. Get a $50 bonus when you open your account using code PODCAST50.